Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Veteran sports writer Nazvi Karim has reported for the South China Morning Post for years. He was recently in Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics and I caught up with him to find out what he thought of the Hong Kong team but also to look back at previous Olympics contenders from Hong Kong. Of course we went there with a lot of trepidation given what was uh, written about Rio and uh, the organisation but we came back, I mean, pretty much satisfied. Uh, it was... Organization-wise, it was done well. The buses were fine. Uh, no worries about mosquitoes whatsoever. Uh, of course, there was this, the crime uh, factor was there. There was this air of fear. But, uh, you know, in terms of when we're traveling, we're just staying on the Olympic routes. We're, we're going to venues. We're going to press conferences. So we never really went off the beaten path. I enjoyed it, and it was uh, much better than I expected. How do you think that Hong Kong did? I think Hong Kong did well. I mean, uh, yeah, we didn't expect win any medals, but uh, most Olympics we take part in, we don't win medals. I was there when the Hong Kong athletes were taking part, and I can see that they trained hard. Uh, they gave it their all, and they were genuinely disappointed when they did not meet expectations. Okay, when I say they did, they did well in the sense that they tried their best. They uh, they could have uh, maybe got to quarterfinals instead of round of 16. But overall, yeah, I think uh, we should not complain about the effort that the Hong Kong athletes put in. Now, looking back over the decades, uh, could you highlight some of the sports people as we look back at some of the uh, Olympics of past times? What would you like to focus on? Well, of course, I mean, you cannot go past Li La Shan in a gold medal in, in 1996. I was at that Olympics 20 years ago, and it was it was definitely a, uh, a breakthrough for Hong Kong. Well, I wouldn't say breakthrough. Breakthrough implies that uh, there was a flood of medals, gold medals afterwards. There weren't, uh, but it was definitely a historic moment for Hong Kong in terms of Olympics, and we won a gold medal there. Yeah. So Li La Shan in the windsurfing, so you were there when it happened? I was there when it happened, yeah, and... Uh, and where were the Olympics that year? That year, the Olympics were in Atlanta. Uh, having, uh, on, on a side note here, Atlanta Olympics were very much more disorganized than, than uh, Rio was. It was a nightmare. Uh, but the actual sailing events were held in a town called Savannah, which is a two-hour flight from or one-hour flight from Atlanta on the coast in, of Georgia, which is a beautiful city, uh, home of Johnny Mercer, uh, the famous uh, American uh, lyricist and, and songwriter. And, uh, yeah, and it was a great setting, and uh, it was far from Atlanta. It was like in a different world, and it was a, it was a great moment to be. So 1996, Li Lai Shan. Has she taken it forward? I mean, she won the gold medal for um, windsurfing. Mm -hmm. Has she actually been seen as a, a bit of a figurehead, or um, has she managed to push... Hong Kong sports uh, subsequent in the past t 20 years? Yeah, um, Lila Shan was an example, it was a great example for Hong Kong because she was Hong Kong born. She trained in Hong Kong and uh, she was basically a made in Hong Kong product and she won a gold medal. So what Lila Shan did was she showed Hong Kong people that they could win medals in, in certain sports. There hasn't been a flood of gold medals afterwards, not because she didn't leave a legacy, it's just, it's just various reasons that uh, Hong Kong... Uh, uh, being what it is, you know, sport is not given priority. But you can see the difference between now and 20 years ago in the sense that uh, the athletes we had 20 years ago, you know, you would only say Lila Shan was the only one who could win a medal. Whereas now, you know, we have, you know, at least half a dozen athletes that can that can do that. So uh, it has it has pushed on from there. In 2008, I met a, a researcher called Vince Hayward, mm -hmm. and he told me about, on Hong Kong Heritage, he told me about this uh, 
quite uh, momentous football team mm -hmm. uh, that came under the name China, but in fact the majority of the players were ours. Yeah, um, actually if you look at that squad, the team that started the match, they played against Great Britain, they played one match and they were beaten 2-0, which is not a bad effort. And in that starting 11, nine players were from Hong Kong, uh, two from the Republic of China, uh, it could be Taiwan, it could be mainland China, I'm not sure. But yeah, Hong Kong, basically sport at that time was Hong Kong. You know, in uh, mainland China, there wasn't that much. Taiwan, there was a bit. But sport really revolved about Hong Kong. And at that time, the, there was no Hong Kong Olympic Committee. Uh, the China Olympic Committee was formed by Hong Kong people, right, to, so they could take part in Olympics. And then they weren't seen after that, you know, not until uh, the early 80s of their return as People's Republic of China. And so, yeah, so it was, uh, it shows you just how far back Hong Kong sports heritage goes. So that was 80 years ago in uh, 1936, mm -hmm. and that was the sort of Olympics that uh, took place in front of Adolf Hitler right, in yeah. Berlin. Yeah, that's right, and it was, uh, and what few people realized that Hong Kong were there. You know, they might have been under the name of Republic of China, but it was Hong Kong and. Uh, most of the football team were from Hong Kong, were Hong Kong players because no one else played football. Hong Kong were the, the British colony. They had the influence from England of football and uh, it was quite a... Uh, they had a league going as well already, so it was natural that all the players would come from Hong Kong mostly. There was even a player from um, Indonesia at the time of the Dutch East Indies, but uh, mostly it was 90% Hong Kong players. And so they came, they came under actual the Repub uh, People's Republic of China? Yeah, at the time... It, there was but it would have been called what? It was it was Republic of China, but you know because at that time there was there was no uh, there was no there was no Hong Kong Olympic Committee. Hong Kong Olympic Committee didn't get formed, I think, until it was early fifties. Then they were separate from China. So at this time it was Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, Macau. Everybody was lumped into one. So whoever formed Olympic Committee, basically, you know, if you're from that area, Greater China, you could play for them. It was only later on that it became more structured in terms of Hong Kong and Macau separated, and, and Taiwan, as they call Chinese Taipei officially. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So that was 80 years ago in 1936. Mm -hmm. Subsequent to that, mm -hmm. can you um, pinpoint some of the sort of athletes that have gone uh, in subsequent Olympics? Well, um, you have to go a, a long way afterwards. I mean, uh, I can think of a guy called Anthony Moss. All right. He was actually representing New Zealand in the 1988 Olympics, and he won the bronze medal for New Zealand. Uh, we've written articles about that, how he's the first Hong Kong Olympic medal winner in, in, in inverted commas, simply because he was born in Hong Kong. He was brought up in Hong Kong. He went to KG5 school and uh, he was in Hong Kong till he was eight, till about 15. Then he went to New Zealand and, and, and eventually the US where he developed his swimming and he was good enough to win a bronze medal. And he always thanked uh, the Hong Kong coach, a guy called Harry Wright, who's produced a lot of uh, Hong Kong swimmers. And uh, he thanked him. In fact, if you go to the, the Te Papa Museum in New Zealand and you will find a cabinet, a glass cabinet, and there's a huge page one from one of the New Zealand papers and the headline is Anthony Moss thanking Hong Kong's Harry Wright for his bronze medal. So definitely a Hong Kong product there. And he admitted himself, though, he's New Zealand through and through. And then, of course, we had uh, Li Lai Shan, who won the gold medal in 1996. And from there, we have to go to the 2004 Athens Olympics where... Uh, the table tennis duo of Ko Lai Chuck and Lee Ching, they won a silver medal in the men's doubles. It was a great achievement in Hong Kong, but it's still, you know, dare I say, people are not exactly enamored with that win because these guys were born in China 
And at that time, the table tennis had a big history of importing players from China. Chai Powa and Chan Tan Liu being the women who did very well in world championships, though they never won Olympic medal. And then, so how did that work then? You would have mainland uh, athletes who would then come to Hong Kong, live here yeah. seven years, get permanent residency, be able to represent Hong Kong. Exactly. It wasn't even at that time seven years. It was depending on the rules of the various sports federations. And I think uh, table tennis at that time, they required just a three-year residency. Inevitably, I'm not saying anything, inevitably when they would meet China in certain matches, they would always lose. You decide what you want with that. <laughs> the residency issue for Hong Kong has always been a little bit controversial. Yeah. Um, I've also had people who've been, say, British but born in Hong Kong. So what happened with athletes like that? I can think of dressage and various other sports where this is applied. Yeah, again, it depends on the federations, like the, the equestrian federation, the table stand. They would have their own rules, and the IOC would be okay with it. So uh, now certain sports are more strict. Hong Kong, I think they now uh, you have to have been here seven years, so you can't just walk in and, and play for Hong Kong. And uh, IOC are being a bit more strict because things have happened, not from Hong Kong, from other countries. If you remember Zola Budd, the South African, you know she just hopped off to England and uh, within months she was a British citizen. If you look around the world, there's Bahrainis who, who were Kenyans just last year, you know, <laughs> and uh, Qataris who were uh, from African countries just a few years ago. So it's not a Hong Kong phenomenon. It's not a China phenomenon. It happens everywhere in the world. And I see a, a bit more strict about it. Now there are more stringent requirements in various federations. I mean, some, of the, some are still three years, some are seven years some you have to be born there so it, it just it's, it's still happening it's not going to change but it's a bit more stringent now mm -hmm. Go, looking back over the years um you know that that hong kong has taken part in the uh, olympics mm -hmm. what are the sports that our athletes represent that's a simple answer it's also a complicated answer because okay the same at, at one point we have badminton table tennis these are the sports that hong kong usually excel at then again you have windsurfing <laughs> where did that come from you know, and cycling. Cycling has always been a strong sport for Hong Kong, but now we have Sarah Lee YZ, uh, uh, an athlete who can actually win medals. How, how come cycling so strong? It's, I think if you if you have to go to if you go to a place like New Territories, people cycling a lot, and uh, cycling is actually quite a popular sport in Hong Kong. And uh, Sarah Lee is the best of a long tradition of strong cyclists who have never really made an impression at Olympics, but we've been strong in Asia. We've always been Asian champions, road race champions. Before Sarah Lee, we had Wang Kampo. Before Wang Kampo, we had uh, Hong Chong Yam, who had a great impact in the 1980 Olympics when he was third in the road race for, for a long time before he, caught up, he was caught up by the peloton. So cycling has always been strong for Hong Kong. So the road race where? That was in Seoul in the Seoul Olympics in Korea and he was third for ages and ages and then finally the peloton caught him and he, he, he was with the peloton in third place but he didn't get the bronze medal because he was, he was caught up by that time, yeah? Mm -hmm. Do you find that certain sports uh, are to do with also the Hong Kong physique? That, that, that certain ones work better or is that now increasingly because of training and because of, I don't know, worldwide sports nutrition that that applies less and less? Yeah, and no, I agree with that. Uh, in fact, if you look at the Hong Kong Sports Institute uh, requirements for sport, they would focus more on sports that are more in tune with the Hong Kong physique. And so you have sports like table tennis and badminton and, and even cycling because, you know, it, it, a lot of leg strength involved and uh, that really uh, crosses a lot of uh, racial boundaries, as it were. But yes, without a doubt, uh, 
certain sports we do focus on because it suits the physique more. If you ever watch Hong Kong play China in a, in a football match, you would see the Chinese guys are always much bigger than them. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's the way it is, you know. We have a realistic approach to that, so uh, sports like uh, lightweight rowing, very rarely you see Hong Kong taking part in the senior rowing, in, in heavyweight rowing. They always have lightweight rows and they do well. So, yeah, definitely that's, that's a factor. Yeah. With the Hong Kong Olympic Committee, when was that set up? The Hong Kong Olympic Committee was set up in the 50s. I think it was 1951 to take part in the 1952 Helsinki uh, Olympic Games. And that's when Hong Kong sent four swimmers to the Helsinki. I don't, know, I, I don't think any of them qualified, but uh, we sent four athletes. And then, uh, again, we with that Olympic Committee set up, we could send... Uh, at least to the next Asian Games as well, which was in Manila. Mm-hmm. Adio Silas, as we know, he's a former urban councillor, and he he did a lot for Hong Kong sport. He was he was a he was a by the book guy. You know, he would always stick by the book. He wasn't very popular with some people because of that, but definitely he maintained. It was because of him basically that the Hong Kong started the Olympic Committee, and he played a key role in ensuring that Hong Kong would stay as a separate sporting entity after 1997. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Hong Kong, I mean, obviously in terms of defence and foreign policy, uh, we come under, um, you know, the Hong Kong comes under uh, the rest of the motherland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in sport, Hong Kong stands separately. And having spoken to a couple of people, I understand you had something to do with that. Well, uh, <laughs> I was told I did. I mean, actually what happened was it was in the 1994 Asian Games in Hiroshima in Japan. And uh, the president of the IOC then, the late Juan Antonio Samranch, he's a Spanish guy. So the International Olympic Committee. International Olympic Committee. He was giving a press conference, and I was at the press conference. And, and, uh, and when it came to question time, I asked him, you know, Mr. Samranch, Hong Kong is returning to China in 1997. What's going to happen to their sport? Are they going to be part of China, or will they be a separate entity? And he said, he knew what he was talking about. He said, under the basic law, there's provisions for this, and Hong Kong will be a separate entity as a sporting entity. And, of course, we went big with that story. Uh, the next day, the China Olympic Committee, they were not too happy, and they said, no, this is not the case. It will be up to China if Hong Kong will be a separate entity or not. So there was a lot of uh, uncertainty about that. And then the next day, Sam Ranch came back and said, no, China will accept this because it's provided under the basic law, and Hong Kong will be a separate entity after 1997. So uh, a couple of days later, I was speaking to Silas, and he was telling me, you know, he, w- he was basically thanking me. He said, thank you for your question. That question played a big part in raising the issue and helping Hong Kong to become a separate entity after 1997 so we can go under our own flag. And, uh, yeah, of course, I was quite happy that, that he told me that. Uh, the only thing that Hong Kong could not change, and this caused some issues, but uh, China got their way in this one, was that Hong Kong would be called Hong Kong China after 1997. So if you're at the Olympics or at the Asian Games, they are referred to as Hong Kong China. So that's the only change that happened. But apart from that, Hong Kong are basically a, a separate country, as it were, when it comes to sport. Back in 1952, when you said that they, uh, you know, the Olympic Committee had been set up here in 1951, 1952, mm-hmm. uh, they sent four swimmers to mm-hmm. Helsinki. Mm-hmm. In those days, uh, what were we known as? In those days, we were known as Hong Kong. Just Hong Just Kong, Hong not, the, not the British uh, colony of Hong no, Kong? No, no. At the time, it was, it was the... Uh, Amateur Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong. When everybody returned from Rio de Janeiro this time, C.Y. Lang was saying that, uh, you know, he praised them, but also said that perhaps, uh, well, he alluded to the fact that there should be perhaps a bit more investment in sport in Hong Kong. Certainly in the UK, when you look at how much 
that investment has shot up since, since China in 2008, um, and it seems to have paid off. Yeah, I mean, from any point of view, investment will always help. The more money you put in something, you know, surely you're going to get more results out of it. And that is what happened with Hong Kong. But the thing with Hong Kong is, is where do you put this investment? That's the important thing. I mean, you can you put money. Hong Kong's problem is they do not have enough world-class athletes. If you look at Sarah Lee, she's the only one capable of uh, winning medals, whereas China, they've got a dozen, you know, uh, in not only cycling, all other sports. So Hong Kong, they need, they need more people to be involved in sport at young age. And then at the elite level, if you can get three or four people who can compete at Olympic level, then we've succeeded. Now we're getting one or two who can compete at Olympic level. We're getting maybe, you know, a few dozen who can compete at Asian level, you know, which is much better than it was 20 years ago. But really there has to be more investment at grassroots level where kids are playing the sport and then kids want to stay in the sport to elite level, which is a huge sacrifice. It means schooling has to be considered, career considered. So all these things have to come together to, to form an elite pyramid, as it were. To be an athlete considered for the Olympic team in Hong Kong, do you have to be ethnic Chinese? No, you don't have to be ethnic Chinese. I think uh, nowadays you have to have a Hong Kong passport, either a BNO or a or a Hong Kong Hong Kong passport. So uh, that's the requirements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in general, I mean, because if we look at hockey and cricket, I mean, I don't know how much they are Olympic sports, mm-hmm. but they they're dominated here by, you know, um, people of Indian and Pakistani heritage. Hockey has been an Olympic sport for a long time. Cricket is an Asian game sport, and Hong Kong take part. And yes, they have uh, ethnic Pakistanis, who some of them who are born here, some of them who have changed their passports to Hong Kong passports. And you have a lot of Chinese players now. We have a Hong Kong Dragons team. There are some good players there who are coming up. And uh, it's hoped that within the next, uh, you know, five or six years, some of these Hong Kong Chinese players can can uh, break into the first team and if you look at the women the women's team is 90% Hong Kong Chinese and they're doing great strides there and they're they're, I would say in the top three in Asia What did you think? It was interesting in in the wake of Rio that I was reading a lot of articles about uh, sexism in sport and in sports writing what was your take on that? Yeah, I think, you know sexism in sports writing is something that I'm, I'm fear that maybe I'm sort of guilty of this because you know we're so used to it and nobody pulls you up for it but nowadays people are and you think about your writing you say oh hold on yes you're right maybe I shouldn't write it this way I should write it this way so it's an evolving thing it's not going to happen overnight and you know if 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 I'm guilty of it you know by all means tell me and I'll I'll change because yes it definitely has to be has to be changed because my, my view of, of sport is if it's if it's a Spectacle. If people enjoy it, if people come to watch it, then there should not be any sexism involved. You know, it's if you look at the women's rugby at the Rio Olympics, it was fantastic. You know, it was probably more entertaining than the men's. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's definitely something that has to be addressed, and it's a learning thing. And you know, and and more women needs to be involved and provide input. Say, so, you know, this is what we're doing wrong. Change it. And we say, sure, no problem. You probably also need, I mean, where you say it's also evolving, I mean, this again, veering away, while I've got you here, it's veering away from Olympics a little bit, but I've noticed like like Premier League, uh, you know, when you suddenly, there was a, uh, I think um, she she says vaguely fishing around, I think there was a a French um, Mm. uh, football manager who's, you know, and it's, oh, you know, she's she's managing men, you Mm -hmm. know, and um, do you think some of that, you know, over time will change? 
Yeah, I think the more it happens, more people are brave enough to put women in authority over men. Uh, then eventually it'll change, as, you see, as you've seen in many in many things. I mean, example, rugby union sevens. No one's okay. We mentioned it this time, but really, it was. It, it's becoming so normal now for women to play rugby and play well. Women's football. It's so normal for women to have a great World Cup, and uh, now it's it's not looked at something odd. And the more women that are coming through, uh, the more it'll become the new normal. And you wouldn't have this problem of sexism, whether it's either in people's views or people's writing. And if you look at Hong Kong, Hong Kong is leading the way in that sense because the coach of the Hong Kong men's champions team, Eastern, is a woman. Her name is Chan Yun Ting. She's in her late 20s, and she's the first ever women's coach of a men's senior team who have won the, ch- who have become national champions. And uh, Hong Kong is in the Guinness Book of World Records. So definitely, in terms of women in sport, Hong Kong are leading the way. They have done for a long time as well. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. At Rio, of course, there was a lot of issues of Russia. Well, the Russia Paralympic athletes have been banned, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, whether Russia. I mean, specifically, but there's plenty of other examples. The Ken, some of the the Kenyan team, mm-hmm. um, were whether they would be allowed to take part because of the whole issue of drugs, uh, particularly permeating athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, how clean is Hong Kong? My view on this is, I mean, when you say how clean is Hong Kong, I have to go beyond this uh, first because uh, this issue of Russia or Kenyans, uh, when Ben Johnson was first caught with drugs in 1988, right, that was a huge scandal. That was supposed to be seen as the, as a changing of the tide where finally the war on drugs would be started and it would be won. And uh, what is now nearly 30 years after that and it's worse than before. So my view is not about banning Russia, banning Kenya, ban the Olympics, ban the Olympics. This is the platform they use the drugs for. You know, if the Olympics can't sort out its mess, it's not a Russian mess, it's not a Kenya, it's, it's an Olympic mess, ban the Olympics, don't give them the opportunity to go for that. That's what I say. Uh, Hong Kong, how clean are they? I mean, my view is that unless you're caught, you're clean. Let's not have any uh, innuendo, Let's not say, oh, these guys are cheese. Let's, let's, let's lose with grace. If they're caught, the doping test, okay, fine. Then go for your life. Criticize them. But until people are caught, let's assume that they're innocent. And uh, if you have a, the kind of problems the world is having with doping, we should ban the Olympics, not the countries. That's a radical take. Mm, absolutely, yeah, because this is the platform that they vie for. This is why they take drugs, to do well at the Olympics. You know, So it's like you know, the ivory trade, right? You know, uh, you know, if you don't buy it, you know, the elephants won't get killed. If you don't have an Olympics, they won't take drugs. There's nothing to take drugs for. My sister-in-law was writing to me on Facebook saying that they're, they're a very sporting family mm-hmm. and that they were getting up at uh, one o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. in order to watch some of the coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, you, when you were a kid, when there was Olympics uh, going on in other countries, was that something also you did? Absolutely. I, I used to love it when, when I was growing up in Hong Kong that they have Olympics in places like the U.S., you know, where the time difference is so that you would actually get up at three in the morning to watch things, you know. It was no fun watching it in the afternoon. It was that special feeling getting up at, you know, odd hours in the morning and watching, you know, fencing or rowing, you know, something that you would never, ever watch, you know, in normal times. But because it's the Olympics, you watch it and you know the names, you you, you pull for certain countries and, and it, yeah, it was great fun. I think that's the special thing about the Olympics. You watch sports, you know, however dubious they are or you think dubious they are, 
yeah, because simply it is in the Olympics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are the more what you would class as eccentric sports that are, uh, have been gradually introduced to the Olympics? I'm biased towards the Olympics, so I wouldn't say that it's eccentric now, but. <laughs> Uh, I would say in Japan, I think surfing is coming in as Olympic sport. So if you want to grab one, you know, there's there is a, a centric sport and uh, golf. You know, you know, golf is uh, was included in the in the first Olympics in Athens in 1896, but in modern times, no one would ever thought that golf was Olympic sport. You know, it's elite. It's considered a bourgeois sport, but so that's a bit quirky in my point of view. But it it did well at Olymp- at Rio and. In, it proved to be a popular edition. So. Yeah, but nobody turned up. No, there were more people in the golf than anywhere else. It got record crowds. Oh, but I mean, you know, but some of the senior oh, players. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, there you go, yeah. Uh, some of the senior players didn't turn up, uh, but some of them did. So this is a question of, you know, uh, I think a lot of the senior players regretted not, not turning up because it is Olympics and... It was Justin Rose, it wasn't was it? Justin, Justin Rose who won the gold medal and uh, uh, Jordan Spieth, the two-time major champion Rory McIlroy he didn't turn up uh, so we had I think four, the, four top guys who didn't turn up but I think they're looking back now and wish they did yeah, because it, it was a good tournament yeah. What kind of sport would you like to see um, really to flourish in Hong Kong? I think uh, Hong Kong they should really focus on the sports where there are a lot of medals available and you're talking about swimming and, and athletics alright uh, then it goes back to the question of, you know, are Hong Kong people, their physique, are they are they suited to that? Maybe, maybe not. But at the same time, you know, uh, these are the sports where you have, you know, the bulk of medals. Yeah, and does I, I wonder about that. Sorry to interrupt you, but right. like Michael Phelps, he's really tall. Mm. So, I mean, does that just mean that if, if you had a Hong Kong man next to Michael Phelps, that he's got to swim faster because he just can't reach the end as fast? Absolutely. I mean, we're, funny you should say about Michael Phelps. They, they talk about his, his physique, and they say he's got a freak physique where his torso is is uh, proportionally bigger than his waist down. Uh, for, even for a swimmer, it's it's more so, which gives him an advantage over the other swimmers. So he has to basically expend less effort than the guy next to him. Uh, he so he would he would com- com- complete a a 100-meter swim in 41 strokes, and the guy next to him would do 44 strokes. They've got that science down to that. So definitely, you know, you have to be tall and and huge wingspan to do well at swimming. Uh, so, you know, I've seen these guys in Hong Kong, you know, let's get them and, and, and show them, listen, you can make money out of this and become a millionaire, you know. Yeah, what's your view on that? I mean, they would, I saw, a, it was probably an SEMP graphic, but it was uh, basically showing... Um, who gets what where mm-hmm. in terms of if you win medals yeah. and interestingly in the UK you do, well in essence you don't get anything at all I'm sure you get plenty of advertising afterwards but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you're not specifically paid for medals do you think that, that that's something that Hong Kong could do? I think this is a very important point because yeah I, in different countries they pay different for medals Singapore you get a million Singapore dollars which is you know I think it's five million Hong Kong dollars and Hong Kong, I think you also win a million Hong Kong dollars. Uh, but Britain pays much less, by all accounts. And, and uh, their athletes make money for, through corporate sponsorship. And if the corporate community can get in Hong Kong and sponsor athletes and, and use them as in, in marketing, that'll be a huge fillip for the, for the sport here. Then 
you know, they could they could provide them with careers. And a lot of a lot of the problem with the athletes, even in UK, is that what are they going to do after athletics careers? So if uh, companies can talk to parents and say, listen, your kid is going to be really good, you know, we'll give him a career. You know, he can work for us. He can train whenever he wants, and he'll have a career after sports. So so let us have him. The problem you get there is that you know, uh, our company is going to willing to be to sponsor people who finish eighth and ninth in the world. You know, we look at that and say, oh, they did badly. But you know, eighth and ninth in the world, the eighth best accountant, the eighth best surgeon is going to be a millionaire, billionaire. You know, why can't a the eighth best athlete in the world also also make money like that? My thanks to Nazvi Karim providing some insightful comments there on Hong Kong sports. Next week, I head to the observatory in Chimsa Choi, where director Shun Chi Ming tells me about some of the major typhoons that we've had in the city. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>